They're culminated in Revelation 20, 21, and 22. See, really you could break the Bible into three parts. Genesis 1 and 2, how the goodness of God is displayed to us in creation as His image to enjoy and know Him. Genesis 3, how we rejected that. And Genesis 4 through Revelation 22, how He redeemed that. And that's really how the Bible itself is laid out. And so this morning we're looking at what is a hinge, a pivot in our understanding of the whole Bible. If we fail to understand Genesis 3, then Genesis 1 and 2 don't make the kind of sense that they ought to to us. And certainly Genesis 4 through Revelation 22 become clouded almost as if there's some kind of collection of sayings and moral truths to help us improve ourselves. And so helping us understand God and his redemption plan is right here today, Genesis 3. So we're going to jump right in and we're going to break it into three parts. I think that these are the three major themes of Genesis 3. There's Enough here that literally we could spend a year dissecting all that goes on in Genesis chapter 3. But I'm not going to pack that whole year in this morning. Here we go. Number one, the subtlety of Satan. That's the first thing we're introduced to in this passage. It is how the third chapter opens. you got chapters 1 and 2 sandwiched between two great statements. Chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Chapter 2, the very last verse in chapter 2, and the man and woman were naked and not ashamed. That is the picture of God's glorious goodness displayed. And then chapter 3 is introduced with the subtlety of Satan. Now, I like the King James translation here. I like the word subtlety above craftiness and above some of the other translations. I think all of those ideas are there, but subtlety kind of displays the soft cell that Satan uses to bring what he's doing without raising your alarms. This is very important in understanding sin. Satan's Angle, his avenue, his approach is to bring you into sin without raising your alarms. And he's subtle in how he does that. And so the subtlety of Satan is shown to us here in verse 1. We're going to break that down a little further. Letter A, Satan sows the seeds of doubt through deception. Satan sows the seeds of doubt through deception. Deception. Look at how he starts craftily, subtly. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, hasn't God said you shall eat from every tree in the garden? He's turning it around. Aren't you supposed to eat from all of these? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God said you shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. And Satan 
the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. I want to bring a slide up here. Um, Go ahead, Robin, to that next one. I want you to walk through this with me. This is from Russell Moore. How many of you know who Russell Moore is? Okay, you should get to know him. He is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the SBC. The man's been on CNN. He's been on Fox. He's been on MSNBC. He's constantly brought to the forefront to discuss issues. And he wrote an article recently that I think helps us understand Satan's subtle approach. This the brokenness of sexuality all around us demonstrates something far deeper than a crisis of culture. The brokenness of sexuality around us demonstrates a crisis of worship. We will not get out of this with better Internet filters or more accountability groups. We must recognize that technology will continue to offer fallen humanity what it thinks it wants. The illusion that we can transgress God and not surely die. Our only hope starts with a kind of vision which sees that no matter the technology, we are never anonymous to God. This is a very important statement. The illusion that we can transgress God and not surely die. This is the lie. That you can get away with sin. That's the lie. This is reflected in Romans chapter 1 when it says that they turned and instead of worshiping the Creator, it says that they believed the lie. Now, the lie that is there is definite. It's not a lie. Some lie. It's the lie. This is the lie. Genesis 3. You can do this and get away with it. That's the lie. And this is the danger of all sin. We seem to think that we can sin and put that sin and that sinful act in some kind of isolation chamber called grace. And that because of grace, we can go ahead and get away with it. Satan has been working this lie for a long time. And it is the lie that he brings to you to doubt the Word of God by his deceptive invitation that you can do these things and get away with them. And so he begins by sowing the seeds of doubt through deception. He wants Eve to doubt God's good word. Let's go a little further. Let her be. Doubt gives birth to trusting one's own judgment to justify our rebellion. There is a fundamental shift in Eve's thinking. Back here she says, we can't eat it, we can't touch it, we'll die. He says, surely not. And so now... Believing his lie and doubting God's word, she is now going to be left to her own judgment. Now, please understand how truth works. God is truth. Jesus is truth. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, Father, your word is truth. It is an objective, eternal standard that stands outside of us that judges us. When Eve rejected that, she had to hunt for something inside of her as a standard, as a measure. 
she had to now rely on her judgment rather than God's. On her thoughts rather than God's. And so there is a huge shift here that infects all of humanity. And so the doubt gives birth to trusting one's own judgment to justify rebellion. Let's break that into three parts. Here's what happens with Eve. First, we then trust our own discretion. Look at what happens. The lie continues. He gets finished with the lie, mixing a little truth into it. And in verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food. This is her own discretion. This is her own discernment. She says, looks good to me. When I was in college, uh, I had very good friends. uh, And this good friend came to me and said, her name is Gwen. She, She said, hey, my belt is broke on my Volkswagen. I'm wondering if I can drive it home. So I opened up the trunk of the Volkswagen and I didn't know a whole lot about Volkswagens then. And I saw that the belt that turns the alternator was broke and her car was still running and it cranked fine. I said, looks good to me. Now, if any of you know anything about Volkswagens, you know that was a very bad thing. Because in Volkswagens, they're not water cooled. This is the old bug. They're air cooled. And the belt that drives the alternator, also turns the cooling fan. Yeah. So she got about two miles before her engine caught on fire. Listen, don't bring your engine to me. Looks good to me! And listen, here's what's happening. That was a little disaster for Gwen. Eve looked at that tree and said, looks good to me. Hear me. As soon as you leave God's Word, you are left to your own discretion. And when that happens, there is a kind of disaster waiting that you have no idea how bad it can become. Eve didn't. Not only do we trust our discretion, then we trust our delight. Look, look at what it says. Follow the text. It's good for food. Looks good to me. And it was a delight to the eyes. Boy, that's pretty. Isn't it a beautiful fruit? I used to joke around about Laurel. I used to say when she was little that her favorite color was gaudy. Because she loved bright, shiny things. She still kind of likes that. She loves bright, shiny things. And if there was, if we were walking somewhere, if we were in a store, and there was something bright and shiny, Laurel was like, boop. So here's what happens. When we leave the external, objective standard of God's Word and truth, and we begin to trust ourselves, we trust our own discretion, looks good to me, and then we say, hey, that's a delight to look at. All of a sudden now, we're looking at its physical attractiveness. Not its moral character, not its long term, but simply its external appearance. And she looks, it's a delight to the eyes. And she doesn't just stop there. She's left also, like us, to our desire and desirable to make one wise. 
Now here's what's happening. And we do this every day. God's Word says what it says. It is what it is. It is eternal, irrevocable. It is truth. It is the embodiment of His character, His nature, His desire, and His ends, His goals, His purposes. And when we look at His Word and we disagree, disobey, and we say, very often we'll say like this, I know I'm wrong, but... Have you ever said that? Come on. Have you ever said that? I know I'm wrong, but... There's trouble under that. And that trouble is disaster. Because now, what you're saying is I'm smarter than God. And that's all Satan needed Eve to do, is to think that she was smarter than God. And she did. She trusted her discretion, her delight, and her desire, all because of the doubt that was placed when Satan convinced her to think God was not working for her best interest. She doubted him. The second major theme in this passage that will help us get to the Lord's table is not just the subtlety of Satan and how he's working, but the seriousness of sin. So let's go there. The seriousness of sin. One of the things that Satan is always doing in his sowing seeds of doubt, in his getting us to trust our own discretion and our own delight and our own desire, is he tries to get us to minimize the seriousness of sin. It's, that's not a big deal. Why are y'all making such a big deal over such a small thing? Why are y'all talking about sin? Why is that an issue? Why don't we just talk about love and grace? The Bible says in Romans chapter 6 that people who proclaim to be Christians got so confused that in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, it says, are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? In other words, here's what folks were saying. God loves to give grace so much that we shouldn't be worried about sin because it makes Him happy to give us more grace when we sin more. Isn't that great? That's how they were thinking. In Jude's epistle, he says that people slip in and they turn the grace of our Lord Jesus into licentiousness with funny little statements like, it's better or easier to ask for forgiveness than for permission. And we have a lot of thought inside the church that it's okay to go ahead and sin because we know God will forgive us anyway. This is from the devil. And so, the seriousness of sin is a major theme and objective. It shows us... First, letter A, that sin breaks our fellowship with God. There is no way to walk in sin and in fellowship with God. First John says that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with Him and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. There is this belief propagated even in Christian churches 
that we shouldn't take sin seriously. We should emphasize grace to such an extent that we really don't talk about the seriousness of sin because that's legalistic and judgmental. My brothers and sisters, the heart of the gospel is the seriousness of sin. When we come to the table today, we have to make a candid admission to participate. And that is that any and every sin we have ever committed can only be resolved by the slaughter of God in the flesh. And to minimize any act of sin in light of the slaughter necessary to redeem us is to minimize the cross itself. And so, the seriousness of sin, sin breaks our fellowship with God. You see that they're hiding from God now. Look at that. It says they heard the sound of the Lord God, verse 8, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So here is this hiding from His presence. It ought to be the most desirable thing in the universe to be in His presence. But now it is the most detestable thing to them. And so they run from it. And they hide from it because His pure, holy righteousness reveals our sinful nakedness. Sin also, letter B, damages our relationship with others. Man and woman felt the need to hide it from each other before hiding from God. Before they hid in the trees, they hid behind the fig leaves. They were hiding from each other. At the end of chapter 2, they're naked and not ashamed. In the middle of chapter 3, they're ashamed and hiding from each other by making these coverings because they feel their guilt and they feel their shame. And now there's a brokenness between that beautiful intimacy of the end of chapter 2 where the man and the woman in this beautiful, blissful, wedded joy are naked and unashamed. Now here they are ashamed. The first religion mentioned in the entire Bible is the sowing of fig leaves. And it is the representative of all religion in the world. God is never pursued by religion. God is always pursued by relationship. And there is no doing of religion of what you will do with your life by sowing your fig leaves that will ever make you right with others or with God. And God makes that clear. Letter C. Sin infects our relationship with ourselves. What do they feel now? Fear and anxiety. They didn't have that before. Now something inside is so broken that fear is present. This is an important aspect of what the gospel accomplishes, and we'll see that in just a few minutes. But sin damages our relationship with ourselves. We now have this terror inside of us. We're hiding. We feel naked. We're trying to do religion and make things right, but we can't. And so we hide because of what? Something inside of us is deeply unsettled. It's broken. Sin is not only tainted and broken, the relationship with God, with each other, but ourselves. And also, letter D, sin changes our relationship to the creation. Look at what happens in verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. There is a place in Romans chapter 8 where it talks about the futility and the corruption. Moms, if you have a baby, your baby's going to die. And there's nothing you can do about it. 
If you build a house, your house is going to decay. If you cook food, your food is going to spoil. Everything here has been touched. Every person, every place, everything. It is all broken now. It is under what is called the curse. In Revelation chapter 22, it says, There shall no longer be any curse. It is the undoing of what happened right here. But all death, all decay, all corruption, all destruction, everything comes out from this moment in time. Cursed is the ground. Letter E, and finally in the seriousness of sin, sin produces effects beyond our comprehension. This is, I think, Satan's most curious tool and maybe his most successful. Satan tends to make us think that we can isolate sinful acts into some kind of isolation chamber of our heart or our mind or our home or our hidden place. But what Eve is about to find out that this one act of rebellion that she and Adam take part in cannot be contained. In fact, every death that has ever occurred came from this act. Every disease, every act of destruction, Every feeling of discouragement. Every act of disillusionment. All from this one act. Satan wants you to think that you can do something and put it in a containment chamber and you're going to be okay. And it's just between you and God. It's not true. And what I want you to know about every sinful act is that it touches someone else. Something else. It spreads. It's like a virus that escapes from the chamber where they're doing research thinking we're going to work on this virus and we're going to contain it and the virus gets out and it infects all the people around and thousands or hundreds or just a few die because of it. There's this thing that happens in our hearts and it gets out and it infects us, our marriages, our children, our homes, our neighborhoods. You see, here's what Satan has always tried to do. He's always tried to make us think that the problem lies outside of us. My brothers and sisters, our problem is here. At the individual level of the human heart. It's not an out there thing. It's an in here thing. And what I do affects others. And so, maybe they got it then, but I'll tell you when I think they got it. I think they got it while they were burying Abel. I think they got it. It only took one generation for such hatred to exist in humanity that one brother would murder another. I'm wondering if that's when they understood it. Sin is serious. 
all sin is serious. Please don't enjoy the falsehood of the devil by minimizing sin. It is destructive. So, beyond our comprehension, sin will always take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. Always, always, always. So, this sets up the table. And so I want to kind of get our hearts ready for the table because we've seen the subtlety of Satan and we've seen the seriousness of sin. So let's now take a minute and look at the sweetness of salvation. And this will lead us up to the Lord's table. The Lord does three things in interacting with Adam and Eve that set us up to understand the sweetness of salvation. All three acts are very sweet, deliberate acts of God that are setting up His rescue, His redemption, setting up His Redeemer. All three acts. So let's look at them. Letter A, the promise of cover. Excuse me, the provision of cover. I said it wrong. The provision of cover. Verse 21. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. Here's God's doing something that they were inept at. Here's God taking the life of an animal, possibly, and I think so, the first death of any of the creatures that have breath in them. And here, this death provides a covering And God's giving them a hint of the gospel. So there's a provision of a cover. Second, there's the promise of a crusher. Look in verse 15. He's speaking to Satan and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head or bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here's the promise of one born of the woman who is going to crush the head of Satan. Now this is very important because as we come to the Lord's table today, we've got Hebrews chapter 2. Go there for just a moment. Keep your place in Genesis. But I just want to take you for a moment to Hebrews because there's this undoing of the fall passage in Hebrews chapter 2 that gives us a picture of what's happening in the promise of Genesis 3 of a crusher and how this is going to operate. So come with me. Her seed is going to be human. And so we have this picture in chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 14. Join me there. Glorious passage. Since then the children share in flesh and blood. That's, that's us. We are human beings with flesh and blood and bone. And so He Himself, Jesus Himself, likewise also partook of the same, born of woman. That through death He might render powerless... Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Here's the crusher at work. How does he crush the Satan's head? How does he win? Through his own death. The promise of the crusher is that he will be crushed. Isaiah 53.10 For the Lord was pleased to crush him if he would render himself 
as a gift offering. And so, the promise of a crusher. And finally, as we step to the table, an interesting event in Genesis 3. The protection from catastrophe. You say, how how much worse could it get? (laughs) You've got all of the fall and you've got sin and you've got Satan and you've got death and you've got all of this destruction and decay and corruption. How much worse could it get? Oh, it could have been worse. Listen to God describe the worse in verse 22. It's one of the few places in the Bible where a sentence is unfinished. In fact, New American Standard puts this line as like a trail off. Verse 22 of Genesis 3, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, that part of what Satan said was true. Here's the thing Satan didn't tell him. God can know good and evil and not be corrupted by it. We can't. For us to know it, it corrupts us and makes us evil. And so the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then the sentence is unfinished. Like that is the unthinkable. What is what's he saying? Think if you could sit and look at Adam and Eve and they had never died. And they had seen all of the affliction, all of the sin, all of the outworking of all of the acts that they did. If they could sit and see everything and experience every sickness, but the sickness couldn't let you die. You just got sicker and sicker, but you couldn't get over the edge. And all you could ever want is death, but you couldn't have it because you ate from the tree of life to live forever as a corrupt being. And Adam and Eve, thousands of years old, looking at all of the mass, of all of the decay and the destruction and the hatred that has grown over the years. That would be worse. Because then they couldn't be redeemed. And so, this protection from catastrophe was God cutting them off. From the tree of life. Because we cannot desire to live forever as corrupt beings. It would be hell on earth. And so, God's gracious protection from catastrophe. His sweet promise of a crusher and His generous provision of a cover leads us to the Lord's table today so that we can come today and very seriously consider the subtlety of Satan because none of us need to come up here to the table today with any unconfessed sin or with any sin in our heart that is unrepented. When the Apostle Paul called the church to the Lord's table in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, but let a man examine himself before he eats. Why did he say that? He said, if you come to the table unexamined, the Lord will discipline you. 
He talks about the three ways that the Lord disciplines at the table. He says some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you die. That God is so interested in protecting the integrity of the Lord's table that if we approach it without owning up to the subtlety of Satan in our lives and his trickery, without owning up to the seriousness of sin, we really can't understand the sweetness of salvation. And someone's just going to call all of us into a time of examination. Would you bow as the deacons make their way forward? I want to ask you a couple of questions to set up the examination of your heart. The first question, is there any known sin that you have in your heart that is unconfessed and or unrepented? Any. Second, are you willing to ask God to search you and show you any that you may not be aware of so that you can deal with it? So let's pray those two things before the Lord today. Father, make me confessional and repentant of any known sin. Second, Father, make me aware of any unknown that I may confess and repent. Would you pray that now? Father, as a church, as a body, as confessors of Christ and the hope that is in us, we want to be confessional and repentant. Pour Your Holy Spirit upon us today. Pour it upon us in a way that we are deeply moved about how subtle the enemy is to trick us and how serious sin is to ensnare us. That on this day, you would move through this body of believers with a mighty wind of conviction, with a powerful wave of confession, genuine move of repentance. Oh God, if You do not move in us, we are doomed. Father, we pray the prayer of the psalmist 
test us and show us if there be any unrighteous way in our hearts. Show us. We're at your mercy. As you continue in an attitude of prayer, you'll notice as we distribute the Lord's Supper that there are two cups. Underneath the top cup is a second cup. It has the bread in it. And the top cup has the juice in it. They're together. So if you'll have those ready to separate when you receive them. Sometimes they're a little sticky. A little twist will take care of that. you are a guest here today and you are a confessed follower of Jesus Christ and have followed Him in obedience through believer's baptism, we welcome you. That if you are examining yourself and come with a repentant and confessional heart, we welcome you to join us and participate with us today.
would you bow with me? Father, we come to you with the promise of 1 John. Thanking you that 1 John 1 9 says, If we confess our sins, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh God, we need cleansing. We are unrighteous. We need confession because we make pretense that everything is okay. It's not. We're sinful. We're broken. We're rebellious. Oh God, work in us at this very moment to bring about the grace of conviction that we might confess to you and even if necessary to others that we might repent and enjoy this gracious forgiveness. Thank You for Jesus. We rejoice in and celebrate that He is the crusher. We thank You for His great provision. In Jesus' name, Amen. Several lessons are taught at the Lord's table. I want us to focus on two today. One is the lesson that Jesus gave us when He said, This is my body. Jesus was letting us know that He came as the crusher in a physical body And he stood the test that Adam and Eve failed in. 
You see, when he was tested by the devil with the devil's lies, Jesus never failed to trust his father. He never failed to believe all that the father had said. In fact, when Satan tested him in the first test, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. It was the very thing that Eve had doubted and Adam had fallen prey to that Jesus stood firm in. In His flesh, He lived a fully 100% truly human life with all of the temptations and all of the tests, yet He never sinned. So His body was a perfect representation, a perfect substitution In life, what qualified Jesus to be our substitute in death is that He was the perfect substitute in life. He understood the subtlety of Satan and the seriousness of sin. And so by doing everything the Father ever asked of Him in perfect subjection and obedience, He lived the life in His body that every one of us ought and should have lived. But we didn't. And so we celebrate today that this perfect one, Jesus, is our substitute in life. Let's thank Him. Lord Jesus, we give You praise that You are our substitute in life. And when You were tested the way Adam and Eve were tested, You fed Yourself on the good word of your Father, believing Him and not the lie. And by your perfect life and perfect righteousness, you were qualified to be our substitute in death. And so we celebrate with thanksgiving the provision of your life. In Jesus' name, amen. How would the crusher succeed? By being crushed. The way that you get the juice from the grape is you crush it. Isaiah 53.10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, Jesus. If He would render Himself as a Gift or a guilt offering. We read in that beautiful passage in Hebrews, because the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. He was crushed. He was offered up. He shed His blood. And He set us free. And that's why the juice is sweet. It is to remind us that in the promise of the Passover when the Jews first celebrated, 
The cup that Jesus was drinking was the sweet cup that came after the bitter herbs. It was the cup of the sweet release of the redemption of God. And we get to celebrate it today together. The blood of the covenant, Jesus said in His often as you do this, drink this cup, this new covenant, do so in remembrance of me. Let's pray. You lived, Lord Jesus, the life we couldn't live. And you died the death we couldn't die. You took our place. And we celebrate now with a cup that represents blood and sweetness, bitterness and joy, wrath and grace, all in a picture of you shedding your blood. Thank You for the cross. We receive Your forgiveness. We repent of our sins. We renounce the works of the devil. And we rejoice in our sweet salvation. In Jesus' name. Some of you arrived here today for the express purpose of hearing what was shared so that your soul could be saved. You came here today and you were apart from God, separated by your sin, hiding under the fig leaves of your religion, ducking into the woods of your own hidden places thinking that you could get away from God. God brought you here today to hear how sinful you really are and how sweet His salvation really is. And so I want to invite you to Christ. I want to invite you to receive Him. I want to invite you to know forgiveness and grace and joy and peace and to have the fear of death removed from you. I want to invite you to Jesus. Would you right now bow with me and ask Him to save you? Pray with me. Dear God, I see my sin. I see your righteousness. I see my punishment coming to me if I stay apart from you. I see the offer of salvation. Christ living for me, dying for me, raised from the dead for me. I see it. I believe it. And so in this moment, I ask you, God, save me. Forgive me. Lead me. I'm yours. Oh, listen, if you prayed that today from the earnestness of your heart and you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, repenting of your sins and turning to God, He will save you today. Others of you, you came today because God was going to make you have to deal with something you've been putting off. And as a result, you came and, and He's stirring in your heart and you need to come forward and you need to pray with somebody or you need to get at the altar and kneel and you need to settle that thing because you, like Eve, have been saying, looks good to me. I desire it. I delight in it. And it's wrecking your life. I want to ask you to come in repentance today. 
As the staff comes forward as you stand, as God works in your heart, would you 